Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Spartan Speak, a podcast from the Lansing State Journal and Detroit Free Press focused on Michigan State sports. I'm Phil Friend, your host and sports writer for the LSJ, joined by Free Beat writer Chris Solari and LSJ sports columnist Graham Couch. Gentlemen, it is Tuesday afternoon here. Uh, it is Election Day, and I want to thank you all for coming to this recording of the Spartan Speak podcast. How are we feeling, How are we feeling this afternoon? Did you use y'all just to annoy me? Look, I mean, did I emphasize it? Uh, maybe. It is. You You have to read through between the lines and parse through it. Okay. Yes, I, I can flow tweet this later if you want. <laughs> this, that's the and tweet. It, and I'll put an arrow and say this. <laughs> All you got to do is say, um, uh, quote tweet somebody and say, imagine thinking this, y'all, and I will go ballistic. All right. That's, like Chris said, I think that's, I think that's the podcast tweet. Or I should say, that's it. That's the tweet. How about how about that, Graham? <laughs> these are all for people who are a little lost. These are all tweet style or tweet uh, just habits that annoy the heck out of me. And you, that's and you, it. That's all. That's the podcast. Yep. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. No, but uh, yes, I, I forget when you put that poll out, Graham. Was it during the game, or was it like right before the game on Saturday, or was it a day yeah. or two before? I can't remember. It was. Before or after, yeah. but during, I think, yeah. No, yeah. no, I, I know your timeline very, very well. That was before the game, uh, and I think a day or two, and the, the poll that you had during the game was was uh, offering people to sit next to me. It's all I mean, good fun. It's hard, to, it's hard to keep track of everything, especially everything that's gone down since uh, Saturday morning, especially with, with Michigan State in I think we would. I think we're all comfortable saying stunning uh, 27-24 win over Michigan. I mean, all, all of us on the podcast last week. Uh, picked Michigan to win fairly comfortably. Uh, the odds did. The odds actually went up a point after the even after Minnesota somehow lost to Maryland on a Friday night. And I think that's the point for me where I was like, "Hmm, boy, I would definitely take the Michigan State plus twenty two after seeing that result." But I don't know if I would have taken Michigan State on the money line. But I think that's probably the first time where I put some doubt in my mind. And then we saw everything that happened Saturday with you know Rocky Lombardi and Antoine Simmons and everything else. And we'll kind of get into all that here. Talk about everything that happened in the Michigan game on Saturday and what we're still thinking about here three days later. And then we will also talk a little bit about Iowa, which is Michigan State's opponent for Saturday. And then we will all make predictions for that game. All right. Well, let's talk about the Michigan State victory over Michigan on Saturday. Graham, uh, Rocky Lombardi and Ricky White. And Antoine Simmons, those are the three guys that we've really seen get a lot of the accolades from that game out of those three. Or you can pick something else you want. What really kind of stands out to you and what might have been one of the differences in, in Michigan State's win? Well, I mean, they all deserve their accolades, and they were all incredible. And, and I'll give you one other element that I, that I think was determining very early was just the line of scrimmage. Uh, on both sides, and especially the defensive line in those first couple stands where you went, these guys are in the fight. They're not, you know, they were really absent um, in that Rutgers loss and, and not a factor. And, and 
I, I thought they won up there and, and, you know, they were in the backfield right away. First play of the game too. You see something where, you know, Michigan, there's nothing special about the play. They just didn't block Jacob Panashuk. And he comes in and, and, you know, all of a sudden you have a five yard loss and then, you know, you see Naquan Jones, you know, diving at the heels of Joe Milton. And then the next play, it's Panashuk again coming in the inside. So, I mean, it was like right away that group that looked so bad a week before, that was the moment you go, this is going to be a different game. And so while, while there are lots of other storylines that were as determining, I think, I mean, Antoine Simmons, certainly they don't win the game without him. Ricky White was incredible. Rocky Lombardi w- was great on those deep balls, all that. I think what happened at the line of scrimmage is what's really, really surprised. I thought Antoine Simmons would play well. He's a great player. I, I didn't know anything about Ricky White. I thought, And I didn't know that uh, Rocky Lombardi could spin a deep ball like that. But the line of scrimmage would be it for me. Yeah, and, you know, I think we – I may have even mentioned this last week, uh, that deep ball that, that Lombardi threw against Rutgers near the end of the first half was, was one of those signs where I was like, this good touch on this pass, it's good velocity, put air under it so his receiver could run to it. It was a great play by a defensive back. But really that was the first time you've seen that. And, and really, you haven't seen Michigan State throw deep routes like that. I can't remember when. I mean, under Mark D'Antonio, I mean – his philosophy was a little different, you could tell. And, you know, they aired it out in that game against Michigan, and that was a big thing. For what Ricky White, we had heard little bits about, and I heard that he was coming on a little bit. You know, obviously when you saw him replace Trey Mosley in that Rutgers game, you knew that they, they trusted this kid um, because that was still a game at that point late. But, um, you know, that connection obviously is one that, to me, is really impressive considering how little they've been able to work together because one's a, a fourth-year junior and one's a true freshman, but also because of the circumstances this summer. Um, you know, certainly that was different. But up front, you know, it wasn't so much for me the defensive line. I, I thought the defensive line played pretty well against Rutgers, and, you know, they are deep in the middle. They, and I think the one thing that we saw in the Michigan game uh, that was a little different was how good and how deep they are. I mean, I thought Deshaun Mallory and, and Jalen Hunt both – really shine uh, behind Jacob Slade and Naquan Jones. We knew those two guys were going to be good, um, but they're back to being deep like they were. Um, I think Jacob Panish, who played with a little more fire, a lot more fire, um, in, in, a, in a lot of ways overshadowed Drew Beasley this week. But you saw that. It was the offensive line to me. Um, you know, you get 126 rushing yards after 50 yards against Rutgers. That's, while not great, it's sustainable and it allows you to do those things in the passing game that they were able to do. I mean, if you don't have a run game, you don't have the protection and time to, to throw deep. Um, so the offensive line, especially the edge guys uh, in Jarvis and our I thought blocked and kept Rocky Lombardi clean and, and opened enough holes that, that they were able to, to keep Michigan honest on the run. So, so if you watched the Michigan-Minnesota game the week before, Michigan, or Minnesota's success really came on those inside zone runs you know, against Michigan. And I honestly didn't think Michigan State would really be able to do that, but that was part of the game plan early, and they had a couple other different styles of runs too, but they were really more successful over the running game than I personally ever would have imagined. Yeah, and you have to just show it. I think that's the big thing is, you have to show that it's there. And I mean, that big play by Jordan Simmons mm-hmm. early, the, the 28 yard run, uh, which I think there was a nice combo block there by, uh, I believe it was Nick Samak and Matt Carrick on that one. Um, but that one really set the tone because, Hey, they, they can actually run the ball here. They've, they've got some, some oomph there. 
Um, now, it didn't sustain, but at the same point, you didn't need it to sustain. All of a sudden, it's in their heads that, that you know, on the defensive side, that you've got to play for it, and, and you can't cheat. Well, now all of a sudden, that opens things up in single coverage deep. And, I mean, I thought all three of Michigan State's receivers, uh, but particularly uh, White and Naylor, really just torched Michigan down the sideline. I mean, they, they torched those defensive backs. You know, Vincent Gray and, and Jamon Green, they were – they were the inferior players, and, and that's something that I don't think we knew that those receivers had in them. Um, I think we knew that they would be good, but maybe not that good. And maybe they won't be that good uh, the rest of the season. But, but for that day, that was the matchups, and they, they attacked it over and over. I was surprised on a number of fronts. I mean, it really was the, 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 the perfect game. But, yeah, the, the matchup was ideal in certain ways um you know people say why didn't they do that against Rutgers and it, it's, a, it's a fair question but he, Rutgers did not play that style of defense there was a lot more stuff available underneath and less over the top um and you know it'd be interesting to see how people play them going forward but the biggest thing that that I think will happen going forward is that it, teams are going to have to account for this and if you've got a weakness most teams don't have two really good veteran corners that they trust, right? I mean, it's just not the way it is in college football in the Big Ten. And so I, I think you've really got to have, you know, you're going to have to give help. You're going to have to take, you know, for two, three, four years, more than that, really, teams have geared up to stop Michigan State's running game. Even when MSU couldn't run the football, they didn't think MSU could really abuse them in the passing game. And if that changes, the whole playbook becomes available and, and – you know, these three receivers, because it, 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 as big as a day it was for Ricky White, and, and yes, teams will start to, uh, you know, be aware of him, certainly. Um, but Jalen Naylor was really good deep. And Jaden Reed had a ball that was, uh, you know, deep, and he was just out of bounds. And Rocky Lombardi clearly has a knack for that and um, that I didn't know about. And so I, I think I'm very curious to see how – it affects future opponents and what that allows MSU to do and, what, and how much that helps protections in the run game and, and all that stuff if teams are concerned about uh, the deep ball. And um, it, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see because if you're an opposing team, what happened Saturday in terms of dealing with Michigan State is, is a little jarring. It, it changes. Like if you're watching film of them, even against Rutgers or previous years, there's no evidence that that was coming or that was available. You knew they had decent receivers, but you didn't know Lombardi had that in them. I think it, it forces defensive coordinators to, to think about some things. Yeah, and I, I think you bring up another point as well. I mean, Rocky Lombardi threw for 320 yards against Rutgers over the middle on an accurate passing day, um, you know, putting the ball into tight windows and leading his receivers. This was totally different because he was taking those shots downfield. So you've now all of a sudden – not only shown the defenses that, but you've shown your offense that we're adaptable, that we can attack whichever defensive front we see in a variety of ways. I mean, they didn't target the tight end at all. And uh, Matt Dotson and, and uh, Trenton Gillison had pretty good days uh, against Rutgers. So, you know, that's a lot of weapons. If you're not targeting, think about that. They didn't target the tight end against Michigan. That's generally a bread and butter when you play Michigan. And, and they, they attacked what they thought they had. And they did it well. I mean, Lombardi's completion percentage went down considerably, but the yards were still there. And, and that's the important thing. And the ball got in the end zone exactly as many times as the previous week. 
Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about the Michigan cornerbacks and uh, whether they were left on an island uh, or there just wasn't enough help over the top. Uh, but he certainly did not seem prepared for what Michigan State could do. And I think the general consensus is that it didn't seem like Michigan was prepared very much at all on either side of the ball. I don't know if that's something you guys went to Syracuse, so I wanted to ask and get your opinion whether or not you think just Harbaugh and the coaching staff just maybe did not come into this game with the preparedness that you expect from from a blue quote-unquote blue-blood college football program. If you think about the Ohio State game, the, the, the last game that I really think about that compares to this in terms of just shock and uh, was the Ohio State-Michigan State game in 2015 where just before the game, you learned Connor Cook's not going to play. They're playing with two backup quarterbacks. That was a loaded Ohio State team. Now, Michigan State had a better offensive line than a more seasoned talent elsewhere. But that it seemed like an awful Ohio State game plan in terms of the number of touches Ezekiel Elliott got. What they, it just they didn't they didn't seem as as prepared for Michigan State as Michigan State did for them. It felt a little like that. It felt a little like they thought they were going to be able to do what they wanted, whatever it was, Jim, if you do what they do and that would be enough. And um, Michigan State was just a lot better than, than Minnesota. I think Minnesota hurt Michigan too. I mean, P.J. Fleck here <laughs> is, uh, you know, he, he built some casinos the other night because, I mean, he, the, the public money was all over Michigan. He, he screwed Michigan. He helped Michigan State. I mean, a lot of work done by P.J. Fleck in this Big Ten season to this point. Uh, a lot of determinative work that because – it really, I mean, you do not see a Vegas line fall by four points on a night without an injury or anything like that. And I do think if the Vegas line hadn't been 25, if it, say it hadn't opened before that Minnesota game, it would have opened at 15. Like Vegas just couldn't drop it fast enough. That was one of those yeah. games where you go, oh, wait a second. Maybe maybe week one lied to us. And that's sort of, you know, that, that's what it felt like. Yeah, and, and I had some people that were reaching out to me on game day wondering why it, it dropped. And I think it had dropped Friday night overnight after that game, now in hindsight. Um, you know, it, it, from the surprise factor, you know, that Ohio State game comes to mind. Um, obviously, the end of the Michigan game that same year comes to mind. I, I did a piece for the Free Press kind of talking about some of the bigger surprises, like the 1969 game. Um, when Doherty changed up his, his offense entirely in a week and, and went from a veer to, to a power eye and, and caught Bo Schembechler's first team off guard. Um, that, that may be historically, but to me, the one spot in particular that where it really stood out, it was the, the last drive that Michigan had after Connor Hayward's touchdown. I mean, there was no urgency. There was no alacrity. There was no uh, – want there was no everything wasn't there and you know they might have moved 90 yards or however far it was but it was at a snail's pace I mean it was like watching grass grow and it, it was almost as if they were coaching that drive thinking they were only down one score I, I mean it was bizarre and you know you were down 10 I, I didn't understand that at all and when I saw something like that you know, obviously you're way deep in the game and, and it, you know, you, you, you know that something changed and something was significantly different. But that in particular, to me, just kind of put the stamp on it that, that that Michigan team was not ready or prepared. How or why, I'm not really sure, but, but it definitely was not. Yeah, they, they, looked, they looked great in tempo against Minnesota. So the fact that you wouldn't do that on that particular drive 
is, was shocking. Go ahead, Graham. I, I think there are a few things. I think when you get hit in the mouth, you, yeah, you know, it, it is a, it's a different. There's only so much you can do, and and they, they weren't prepared to be hit in the mouth like that. And I think the other thing is, you know, and this happens. I mean, Joe Milton did look efficient. I think he's a heck of a talent, but uh, you know, he he is not yet there where decision wise, you know, when things aren't going right, he can really make plays with his arm using his eyes. And, and I think you have to play to what you have. And they were losing up front, and I think he was a little confused. He threw to some places that really didn't make any sense at times. And, um, I, you know, I, you know I, I think Michigan's a little limited with him and their ability. Like, this is their problem against a team like Ohio State is Joe Milton right now, and maybe by late in the season he'll be able to. But when you're outmanned anywhere, and I'm not saying Michigan State outmans them in terms of talent, but in this particular game they were hitting them differently than they anticipated. He, he just doesn't look like he's a guy who can can just carry you down the field. And, and there aren't many quarterbacks who can, but I think Michigan maybe thought he was that guy. I want to talk about Antron Simmons, but before that, I want to talk about Coors Light. With the election and all the craziness surrounding it this week and beyond, we all need a moment to chill out these days. How do you hit the reset button? There's only one beer out there, and that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. Coors Light is the official beer of watching any sport or any team. So whether you're watching the Spartans this week or something else, crack open a Coors Light. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. A perfect moment to chill out. Coors Light is the one I choose when I needed to unwind, as I did to compress after watching Michigan State's stunning win over Michigan, or as Chris Solari did this week after sitting through another intense Steelers-Ravens game. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door at get.coorslight.com. So when you want to hit the reset button in your busy life reach for the beer that's made to chill coors light celebrate responsibly coors brewing company golden colorado well let's talk about antoine simmons simmons was absolutely all over the place on saturday and we've seen a couple stories about you know breaking down michigan's defense and kind of how simmons did what he did especially on that play preventing the michigan touchdown uh i mean, I mean simmons is a senior so he's probably already had his breakout game by this point but i think this was you know really a huge stamp on his legacy here at Michigan State. What about what do you say, Chris? Yeah, I mean, this is most likely going to be his last game against his hometown team. And I, I thought that he was active, him and Noah Harvey. I thought they were both all over the field. Um, and that was a big thing last year in the game in Ann Arbor. Is Remember, they moved Antoine Simmons in the middle after the, the suspension of Joe Bocce and had Harvey on the, the weak side, and that didn't really work out. Um, Michigan kind of banged through them and used their speed and, and ran away from the linebackers to the point where they eventually flipped Tyreek Thompson into the middle and moved Harvey out to the strong side and put Simmons back on the weak side. But I thought Simmons, I mean, you know, you talk about a linebacker in that four-two-five who's got to cover ground. I thought both he and Harvey did a great job with that. And, and let's talk about that pass breakup in the end zone because that's a four-point differential in a three-point game. Um, it gets lost a little bit with everything that transpired in the second half, but Hey, that was as big a play as any offensive play in that game. I mean, that was good read recognition and tremendous athleticism. I mean, you're talking about a six foot guy going up on the back pedal away from the line of scrimmage and getting a hand on the ball, but then also landing and still almost getting an interception, uh, but more importantly, preventing a touchdown on a third, on a critical third down, um, you know, kudos to him because, you know, I don't know if they win that game without him and without that play. There were a number of plays, and that one that Chris brought up, is, I think, is the biggest, right? I mean, his ability, his athleticism there, and his recognition of what was happening. Um, I mean, he was uh, he was dynamic defensively. 
And um, it, it's clear that defense takes their cues from him. There are a number of li- young linebackers. I thought Noah Harvey played well. You know, uh, Chase Klein, you know, had some moments. I mean, I, there are young guys around that field that I think take their cues in part from him. Um, and uh, just, you know, I mean, really an important leader on a team that was is, is pretty young a lot of places and in some key spots, or at least hasn't had guys in these roles, you know. And, and uh, yeah, for him, I mean, I, again, I, I doubt he – has another year at MSU. All these, this is going to be a weird discussion that we're going to have later in the season and after the season because none of these guys are losing any eligibility. And so depending on your NFL draft stock and, and um, you know, all these guys, like a guy like, you know, Matt, Matt Coughlin, right? Like, why wouldn't you come back? Why wouldn't you want your kicker back? He's not an NFL kicker, right? So, um, and uh, I, don't, I, think, I don't know. His leg looked pretty good. His leg improved significantly, particularly on the kickoffs. I mean, he was booming touchbacks, and that's been an issue for the last couple of years. I thought Coglin did a good job on kickoffs and that 51-yarder. Maybe he is kicking himself out. Well, it is, it, here's the thing. For him, it'll be like, you know, most of the NFL guys can do 57. But but I also, if he hits clutch kicks, you remember Paul Edinger was not a booming kick guy years ago, and he hit the clutch kick to, 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 to beat Florida in the Citrus Bowl, and the Bears were having trouble, and, with kickers and all of a sudden you want a clutch kicker and he had like a six, seven year NFL career out of it. But a guy like Antoine Simmons, I, I think, you know, he's, he, this is probably it for him. Um, but they're very lucky that they had this year out of this guy right now. And I think Mel Tucker as his tenure at MSU goes on. will look back at having Antoine Simmons right now in this moment is, is very fortunate. And while we're on the subject of special teams a little bit, we got to talk about Bryce Barringer. I mean, you know, that's a story that, Two years ago, this kid was on his couch, and and Jake Hartbarger gets hurt, and Tyler Hunt blows out his ACL, and they're just scrambling to find live bodies that can kick the ball and put a foot on it. And they pick this kid up. He gets a couple nods and and, and kicks for a while um, before they switch to William Pristop that year, and then he's off the roster last year because Hartbarger comes back, and you know all those other guys are there. Pristop transfers and. They bring in a grad transfer this year, Mitchell Crawford from UTEP, and this kid wins the job. And convincingly, because he's kicking 54-yard average in this game, booted a 78-yarder, but was outside of the first punt um, pretty consistently over 50 in that game. I mean, that's a weapon, and that's big for, for the offense to have that, that – being able to flip the field is, is good for the offense and it's good for the defense. Yeah, especially if the defense keeps playing like it did against Michigan on Saturday. Right. All right, well, let's move to the offensive side of the ball, offensive side of the ball here for a quick second. Uh, did the Ricky White performance, do you think that is a harbinger? He had eight, eight catches, 196 yards and touchdown in the game. Do you think that's a harbinger of things to come from him, or is this one of those uh, this might end up being the bright top for him, at least for his freshman year anyway? Or do you think this is something that we can you know, see continually throughout the remainder of the seven games of the season? There's no reason it wouldn't continue i mean I, I don't think you'll always have like these weren't fluke plays he's a playmaker you know i look back though i don't know how well he digests the offense or all that stuff those are the things you don't know right and you know i always think back to that aaron burbridge game against indiana in 2012 and they were really desperate to find a receiver and this is a different circumstance and he had like eight catches for you know 134 yards or whatever and, and maybe maybe i i, I foggy on the stats, but something like that. And Burbridge really, I mean, he had some moments, but did not emerge until later in his career again. He was just a raw talent. Ricky White looks 
different than that, though. Um, he looks. I mean, some of the, that one catch on that deep ball uh, was, was pretty phenomenal. And I don't know. I, I and it, not only that, he's going to have the benefit of really, really good receivers around him. I, you just can't focus on him. It's not like all of a sudden there's the Herald's guy. I mean, I still think. Like, let me ask you guys this: If you're a defensive coordinator, who's the guy? going into week three, the receiver you're most worried about. I, I don't know who that is yet. I don't, and I don't know when a defensive coordinator looks at it. I, I don't know that. I don't think it's Ricky White. I mean, you know, Jaden Reed just had 11 catches in the first game. Jalen Naylor looks fast as heck. has been consistent in both games. Is a little, you know, I, I, again, I, I don't know how you emphasize one of those guys too much. And when they get Trey Mosley back, I mean, again, it has a chance to be a terrific foursome. Uh, great threesome right now. And so I, I, I do think we'll see more of it just because I don't know how you take him away specifically because I don't think it's worth it. I, I think there are the other guys will hurt you. Yeah. And let's, let's take into account the fact that Trey Mosley beat out Ricky white for the starting job and rightfully so, because he was coming off a pretty good freshman year himself a year ago and, and really showed to be a, a, a handsy kind of possession guy with size and speed um, that you're really compliment those speed guys, but boy, I mean, now all of a sudden, all four of them look really good. And the fact that they were blending in other guys, I mean, Cade McDonald had two big catches in the, the final touchdown drive. And this is a kid to walk on, right? I mean, they've got Montori Foster and Terry Lockett that they've been blending in. So they're deep there. So you can't just even prepare for, for just those four. I mean, you know, there was minimal game tape on Ricky white from, from the Rutgers game to prepare. Um, there's a heck of a lot more now. What about those other guys that they were comfortable rolling in? I mean, you know, but from right white standpoint, the separation speed was, was phenomenal. I mean, you know, he was able to, to really, as the ball was coming out of the apex, get away from defenders down the field. And I think you saw that with him. You saw that with Naylor. Uh, you saw that early, uh, I think in the Rutgers game in particular with Reed. So, that's the, those are things that we haven't seen from Michigan State receivers as a group for quite a while. And, you know, certainly the, the timing that Lombardi has with them uh, is, is what's allowing that. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's allowing the big plays. I think that, boy, I mean, th- this offense is averaging 27 points through two games, and I don't know if it was averaging 27 points through any of the non-conference games the last three years. To answer your original question, Graham, I mean, I think I obviously I think teams are going to focus on Jaden Reed the most. And, and do you, Chris, do you happen to know what percentage of snaps he played on Saturday? If because if he was in for most, if not the entire game, then I just think it seems like the Michigan defense zeroed in on him, and everyone the other receivers really stepped up. And if everyone is going to step up, like Michigan probably did not expect Ricky White and company to do, then that's going to cause a lot of problems for the Big Ten defensive coordinators for the rest of the year. Yeah, he was. He was. He was in. I mean. It's- I don't know the exact percentage of it, yeah. but it wasn't like they were just running one wide or two wide. I mean, a lot of times they were going three wide. Remember, they didn't, like I said, they didn't really use the tight ends much. Occasionally you saw Berghorst in there. Uh, with, occasionally you saw Dotson. Occasionally you saw Gillison. But for the most part, they were running three wide all day. And why wouldn't you when, when you're getting that kind of separation outside? I mean, here and here's the, the, the thing you have to love if you're a Michigan State fan going forward. First of all, you know, your season is made at this point. I think everybody agrees this was the moment, and there's still going to be underdogs in most of these games, and getting to 500 is going to be a real chore still when you just look at the schedule. But when you talk about moving forward with this group, um, like I think you're going to have this whole group back next year, 
And the a guy like Trenton Gillison, um, when you start, you know, if he reaches the point where he's a complete tight end where you can play him every down and you're able to go with a lineup with, where you have those four receivers. And, I, and again, I think Trey Mosley is going to be a really good player. I, the, the, what he was at the end of last year, where that where he was headed, I think he's going to be a good player too. And then you add a guy like Trenton Gillison, who I think could be a matchup problem. You, you have a situation where you could be really dynamic. And why that's important is, is you're trying to build this. The way you pull upsets is having playmakers that can beat people. You know, I mean, you may not win every matchup everywhere else on the field, um, but if you've got a passing game that is just trouble for people, which, which is remarkable when you think about what the way we've talked about this Michigan State program in recent years, not having guys that can get separation. The, the irony that the first year D'Antonio is gone, they've got all of it, you know, is you can see why he wanted Jaden Reed eligible. You can see uh, why they needed Jalen Naylor healthy, certainly. Uh, I mean, they recruited Ricky White. This is It wasn't like they weren't trying to fix the issue. These are their guys, right? Um, and, uh, and you know, I don't, I don't, I, look, I think Jay Johnson did a heck of a job with the game plan. I'm not saying it would have unfolded the same way with Mark D'Antonio's crew and Dave Warner, but or I guess Dave Warner wasn't uh, – or Brad Salem. But it's still um, – it, it is going to be – here's the thing Michigan State fans can take on Bridget, I think, is – they may be mediocre for a little while, but they're going to have a chance to upset people because of the way they're built right now at that position. And they're going to be mediocre differently than they were at the end of the D'Antonio era. And that's a lot more enjoyable to watch for people as they're building it. And I think that that helps. Talked about going forward and, you know, what the, what this all means for Michigan State. Uh, let's see. What, what do you guys think this means for Rocky Lombardi going forward? You know, we had that you know, pretty good game against Purdue in 2018. He really, he, since then, he's kind of undersold how he played in that game, and I think he played pretty pretty great in that Purdue game. But he had a up and down up and down performances after that, and that's including the Rutgers game last week, and then on Saturday against Michigan was obviously by far his his greatest performance. I mean, what what can we expect going forward? How do we view Rocky Lombardi as as a quarterback? Chris, I'll have you go first. I, I don't know about that, but I, I I think the the lilting joy in your voice is uh, after three years of, of calling for him is is pretty evident. I, yeah. I think we're gonna have some we're gonna have some better podcasts because I think Phil's gonna be a little more on his game and a little happier. Um, <laughs> no, I, I you know that Purdue game. I think we, that year we saw how bad Purdue's pass defense was and kind of wrote that off. Um, but remember, he was only a redshirt freshman, and I think people forget sometimes how long it takes a quarterback to really, truly develop um, in the Big Ten. I mean, there are very rare cases where you see guys come in and, and make a, an immediate impact, right? I mean, even Adrian Martinez at Nebraska, you know, there's been a stunted development there because he was forced in so quickly. And, you know, that I think that that's kind of the one thing that, you know, you've seen that this kid's got the the mental capacity um, to to observe the defense. I think that's the one thing that we've seen in the first two weeks here. He's able to scan the defense. He's checking down. He's looking at other options. He's going across the whole field. Um, he's, he's shown the ability to throw the deep ball. He's shown the ability to throw underneath routes, uh, the corner routes in particular. I mean, you know, I think that that touchdown to Jaden Reed in the Rutgers game was as nice a pass that he's thrown all year, mm-hmm. um, and a tight window in the corner. Um, so there, there are certainly a lot of things you can tell. 
The other thing is that you can tell that his teammates rally around him. And that's something that we had heard for two, three years about him is that he's got that capacity to bring guys along. And that's no knock on Brian, Brian Lewerke. Um, I think Lewerke at times was a different kind of leader. And, you know, people talked about his calm, cool, almost placid demeanor. Lombardi's not that kid. Lombardi's a kid who is energetic. I mean, the, there are touchdowns that he has thrown to, to Reed and Naylor that he was downfield almost seconds after they were across the goal line. And, and there's, there's something to be said about that to bringing guys along as a leader. And I mean, you know, what happens from here? I don't know. I mean, you know, but I think the one thing that he's done in the first two weeks, and it, this will be another test going to his hometown, uh, all of the, the nervous energy that comes with that and playing in front of his mom and, you know, these things that are um, a little different to, to kind of navigate these feelings that are a little different to navigate. Um, you know, if he comes out of this, I think we're talking now that there's there's no question who the unquestioned starter is. And I think that really through the first two weeks from his play, I think you see why he is. He's got the ball. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, Lombardi, it, the whole thing is interesting with him, right? Because, you know, he's the guy that played a little when he was very young and was, uh, you know, good at times. And okay, you know, had that game against Purdue and then struggled in other games. And Purdue's defense was pretty bad. And he was pretty blunt about it. And, you know, they, they liked him in the, in the offseason. And they, they even put him out there, which was a sign he was going to be the guy, right? It wasn't like they were hiding their quarterback and they didn't make anybody available. And, I mean, the thing is, you get these opportunities happen where you look at the, the competition leading into the time Connor Cook took it. When Damian Terry – this is why they wanted Andrew Maxwell, for example, to win the job in 2013 because they wanted the year – they wanted to come back a year later with – Cook, O'Connor, and Damian Terry, and a true competition, and without Damian Terry being a true freshman and all that stuff. But it, you get an opportunity and you run with it. And Cook did. And he became a three year starter. And this would be interesting to see what happens with Lombardi because now he's throwing a nice deep ball, but he's not really a classic NFL guy, right? He doesn't look like that yet, at least. And if he's not, then, you know, he's got two years after this. I mean, he's a. He is a, essentially a senior in real life and a sophomore in eligibility-wise right right now. Yeah. It, and, and that's something that's – that COVID has created a whole new dynamic with this. And so if it, it becomes his, you know, and then the other guys, you know, if, if one of them's more talented, I, I don't know that. Um, it may become more seasoned. Uh, we'll see what happens. I doubt all of them stick around. That's just the nature of the beast. The idea that O'Connor and Terry stuck around, just, it was a rare, rare thing. That doesn't usually, usually happen. Um, and, and I think if, if you're MSU, there, there's certainly there's intrigue about what, you know, Peyton Thorne is or whatever like that. But what you wanted was to find your quarterback. And after two games, it looks like you have. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you can win with Rocky Lombardi. It's pretty clear. And uh, that's all you want now, the length of time he's there. And, and like, you know, what, what, you know I, I think it, if you leave this year knowing you've got Rocky Lombardi, Next year, and by the way, he looks like your captain. He's your leader. He's like, he, he does a lot of the emotional stuff that Antoine Simmons does on the defensive side. So those seem to be counterparts. You're not going to jump that guy, and be, you want to you want to break apart a team, bench the guy who everybody's following. You know, <laughs> like that doesn't it, who's playing well. I I think if you leave this season with him still playing well, knowing you have your quarterback with that group of receivers going into next year, you feel great about things. And and you know. 
is you hope those guys who are younger stick around and wait their turn. You have time to recruit your own guy a little bit and develop them behind him too. I, I think it's it's only a win, uh, even if, if the intrigue uh, of a Peyton Thorne, for example, and I think that's what people wanted to see, uh, you know, doesn't get to be realized for a while. If I'm not mistaken, he, Rocky started against Michigan in 2018. Is that correct? No, that is not correct. Not correct. Okay, I'm sorry. I was going to say. No, he, his, three starts, his three starts prior to this were against Purdue, Rutgers, and who, Graham? I'm forgetting. Uh, Purdue, was in Michigan. Purdue, right? Purdue. Purdue Rutgers and uh, no, what, 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 was it? Wasn't Rutgers? It was Nebraska. Nebraska was the other one. No, he Nebraska. did start Rutgers in Nebraska that year. The last two games of the 2018 regular season, but Lewerke started the 2018 game, and Lombardi came in at one point, and then I That's think right. they put Lewerke back in. Uh, same with the Ohio State game. That's right. Well, the the reason I brought that up is because you know, obviously, for well, for being his first start versus Michigan, it certainly certainly seemed like he was pretty poised. And uh, Graham, you kind of voiced concerns about you know going home, hopefully, and ho- and wondering if he's going to be maybe too amped up, perhaps. But you know, he seemed pretty level headed against Michigan, so I don't know if that's something that he's to worry about too much, or, or maybe I don't know. Here's the thing about Lombardi. To me, at this point, he, he is just nothing but impressed me. To listen to him yesterday, yeah. Uh, break down why things were happening in protections and the way he understands how to read the room and, get, and credit people here, the sophistication in which he speaks about the position. Uh, you can understand why they like him. I mean, he's a tough kid. He's a sturdy kid. I think the thing that changed about him though, against Michigan is the deep ball. Like his arm was always the thing until Saturday, you know, people would say, it looks like he's throwing a shot put sometimes, or people would say like, I mean, yeah. he threw, some incredible deep passes on target with guys that you say, well, if, if he, you know, what else do you want from a college quarterback? Lewerke struggled for, you know, for, for, for years to, to do that. Connor Cook struggled for years to do that. That's a hard skill to have. And even if he's not the most, you know, he's a bulky kid who sometimes doesn't look like the purest passer in the world. If you can connect, you know, four times from and a ball that travels more than 40 yards in the air, uh, you know, you're going to win a lot of games and you're a pretty good quarterback. Yeah. It's yeah awesome. The mechanics are definitely different, definitely different. And I think you're seeing a little more over the top than, than that, that javelin type motion. Well, yeah, the thing I was going to say was whatever communication issues he had with the receivers versus Rutgers. I, I mean, that was certainly non-existent in the Michigan game. I don't know if that's just a, a maturation or, a, you know, they, they were able to coach that better over the week, over, over the course of a week or, or what? Well, there wasn't as much decisions when your guys are just running straight fly routes on them yeah. and getting separation. You don't have to guess where they're, whether they're going to go on the out or not when you get three yards on a defensive back. Yeah. Uh, but, but before we move on to Iowa, I, I want to bring up Connor Haywood here a little bit and another one of the heroes from Saturday's win. He's, he's had quite a year. Um, it, it seems like his, all of his teammates have certainly more than welcomed him back at this point, although I did find his comments this week uh, when he met with you guys sort of interesting, I, you know he's a guy who was who lost his basically lost his job last year, and then instead of you know toughing it out, he left the team and decided to enter the transfer portal. And I, you never know how teammates are going to react when a, when a player like that in that situation tries to come back. But uh, it seems like he has acclimated himself well enough to the coaches and the teams and. You know, obviously, he he probably had the best his best game of his career as well. You know, in a Spartan uniform against Michigan on Saturday. Do you what do you what is your read on how the the, the teammates view Connor from from that angle? 
I think they like him a lot. I, I think that's, you know, the, those guys were talking about him even during last season after he, he made the decision to opt out and go into the portal. And, you know, I, I think he came back and dedicated himself without question um, to himself, first and foremost. I think he talked about that uh, maybe a month or so ago of how he needed to kind of work on who he was both physically and then mentally and dealing with things. And I think he's done a fantastic job of that. Is he ever going to be that 30 carry between the tackles kind of running back? Probably not. But here's the one thing I think that this staff has done so far in that, in that they've used him in that screen game to replicate a run game to, to tremendous effectiveness. And that was kind of the big thing last year is I don't necessarily know if the staff was using him correctly. I, I think that he could have been flanked out and flared out a little more, but you got if you're going to line up in the backfield, you got to be able to run it at times, which I think he's shown the ability to do. I, I think he had 13 carries uh, against Michigan and, you know, you're never, you know, he's, he's shown burst at times. I mean, in the Maryland game, he ran, I think an 80 yard touchdown. Uh, so he, he, you see, he's got that speed if the blocking's there, but if it's not, does he have the vision? I don't know, but, when you flare him out in screens, when you when you run designated routes for him, I mean that that first touchdown was a tremendously designed play, and that they were running trips on the right side uh, to to draw the defense that way, and then just flared him out to the left, right in front of the linebacker. It was perfect, perfect throw by Lombardi to lead him to the stick and, and the pylon, and, and and you always seen Connor Hayward's hands, and the, his hands even last year were elite kind of hands when they'd line him up in the slot and and you saw it with the two touchdown catches and you saw it on that onside kick so and, and i'm with everything chris said there um I, you know i think he's an interesting case of and i compared him in a piece i wrote earlier this week to potentially being a kenny goins of the football program and the way fans view him and uh you know you remember kenny goins early on was i mean people early on like connor hayward right people early on like kenny goins then kenny goins was playing over Nick Ward. Then Connor Hayward was not what Elijah Collins was, and, and Collins was better. And so there's there's groans when you're not getting places. And and and, and again, it's it's what Chris said. He's not an eye back. He's not a traditional. He's not a guy who's a dynamic just behind a line. They haven't had very good lines anyway, so it's made it worse. Um, and I, I do think you know a lot of these running backs don't. Um, understand the landscape and how replaceable they are everywhere and what their value truly is. It's a, it's a tough world for them. You know, I, I remember a, a guy, Kyler Ellsworth's brother, uh, who everybody knows at Michigan State for making the tackle, Kurt Ellsworth, was a kid, same high school, obviously, one of the great running backs in Michigan high school football history, shows up as a preferred walk-on at Western Michigan, where I was covering at the time, because he thought – Michigan State wants me to either play safety or something like that. I want to be a running back. I'll go to the MAC. He, he, he never was the running back. They got guys all over the place. <laughs> they got guys from Georgia and Florida. And it's, there aren't that many spots. It, Connor Hayward is not going to go to an OMAC school and be a starting eye back. That's not who he was, is in Division One football most places. And I think he had to be hum- – you know, that, it was probably a humbling experience. I give him credit for being willing to come back. Uh, I give credit for to Mel Tucker for – giving a kid a chance to do that. And, and I give credit um, to Mel Tucker for sticking to his guns on, like, this is who the best guy is in practice, is the hardest worker, or the guy gives us the most. Elijah Collins clearly isn't the player he was last year right now for whatever reason. I don't think we really have a read on that yet. Um, and uh, and I do think 
that how they use and the, the emergence of Jordan Simmons allows them to use Hayward how he should be used. And we saw that in the game, and he has tremendous value when he's used correctly. And I give a lot of credit to Graham for making it 45 minutes without a Western reference. So. I know. I was going to say, I was going to say, fill in your bingo card with that. It was tough. Like, I didn't really know how to, uh, where, you know, I, I didn't want to say the specific school. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I wanted, I, I, that story is, it's one of, my, it's one of my favorite stories, though, because guys do think it, it it's a fun, this is a little off topic, but people will enjoy this a little bit. Like, I, when I covered that school, I won't even say which one it was. People used, to always, <laughs> people used to always give the coach their grief for having so many Florida kids in his recruiting classes instead of Michigan kids. And he's like, Michigan kids look at the Mac like, yeah, I'd rather be the fourth string guy at Michigan State. I'd rather, yeah. oh, that's a second choice. They see this, there's a stigma that kids in Florida don't have. And it's just easier to get a higher quality kid down there because the, the stigma exists. You know, it, it, uh, you know and, and I think you look at Ladarius Jefferson, it'll be interesting to see what he is at that same school. I won't say the school out loud uh, because he transferred there. And he's not a guy who looked like a natural running back at Michigan State. I don't think it'll work for him all that well there either. And uh, the level just doesn't change at that position. And that's something people don't realize. The Festern Kishigan Troncos. Going back to Connor Hayward real quickly. I do think we, we talked about how he was and was not being used. I mean, even in the past year or two about how we basically thought he was being misused in certain capacities. And we're seeing him used differently this year. And especially versus Michigan in the past game and a perfect example of, you know, everything's matching at this, at this present time. And more importantly, not only are they using him in the passing game to catch the ball, but he's a blocker. And, you know, he had the one whiff against Rutgers um, that, that caused Lamarty fumble at the one, but otherwise he's been a, a pretty solid blocker for three years. And, and again, Here's the hard thing I think that people forget that he was kind of thrust into action with LJ Scott's injury a couple of years ago as the starter. He was a de facto starter because there was nothing left in the cupboard at that point. You know, there was LJ Scott and, you know, well, LJ Scott's coming back to be the, the bell cow. Well, LJ Scott got hurt and he got sort of, you know, baptism by fire. And then all of a sudden it changes when you're the starter more than just a de facto, um, you, you become the target of defenses, and it didn't last long. Um, and, you know, they, I, I, I do think, though, it's important to bring up Elijah Collins, too, because um, I, I do think they need that dynamic nature of what Collins brought a year ago. Um, you know, I've, I've heard some rumors and whispers that there's a little bit of a bad attitude right now with, with how things are going. I don't know what kind of shape he was in coming out of uh, the, the – month-long shutdown, uh, but but there's no question that, you know, you, you've still seen this team, even though they got 126 yards, they've struggled to run the ball. And it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes forced, but, you know, they're able to pop a few here or there, but they need more of a consistent presence in their rushing game. Elijah Collins has shown the ability to do that. He's got to have the, the physical and mental capacity to handle whatever his role is. Yeah, and the thing is for him – you know he he's not going to be the, the the featured guy this year. That's clear. I mean Simmons has done enough. It's a but if it's a conditioning thing, you know his age and and whatever it was there is time if with the right attitude and, and work to get yourself within a season to a place where in the back half of the season you look like the back you were, um, and then you you might have a role and show it a little bit. Uh, my 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 feeling for Collins, my sense for him is I mean again. 
you know, you know, this isn't a year that counts against you. I'm not saying everybody wants to be around college football forever, but you just in the off season, you, it's pretty clear at this point that Mel Tucker will play the guy he thinks gives him the best chance. And you are a more dynamic at your best. You're a more dynamic runner than uh, a guy like uh, Connor Hayward. And so you just got to get to your best again and you'll have a role. I'd ha- Chris, I'd have to go back and listen to where we talked about the recruiting class on the podcast on the podcast, which was like in January, I think, or December, last December. But I think both of us had Simmons and or White on our top five list. So it, it, from that perspective, it's not that surprising to maybe see them get playing time and perform well here as well, especially with Simmons. I mean, we've seen, we, I think we, we've seen so far why Simmons had offers from the likes of LSU and Georgia and, and whatnot. Well, it's important to forget, or important not to forget the fact that when Mark D'Antonio resigned, this kid's recruitment went into limbo. He yep. kind of didn't want to sign that day to find out who they had had a pre-existing relationship with Mel Tucker. His, his brother had played for Mel Tucker in Georgia and the, he and the and the family felt comfortable with the hire. And, you know, you're seeing that pay off now. Um, and, and, you know, we may talk about, you know, the first full recruiting class of Mel Tucker, but that may be the first real recruit. I mean, the first two recruits that he brought in, you can say, are Connor Hayward and Jordan Simmons. And, that's a, you know, that's a really good that's paying really, yeah. yeah. That's a great point. Well, Chris. Because, and, and, you know, one of the things that Mel Tucker talked about on Tuesday, um, the day we were recording, is, is he talked about how important it is to recruit in the high schools, but it's every bit as important to recruit your own team daily. And, you know, that's how he gets the buy-in. That's how, you know, you have to be in these guys' ears and understand – where they're at, where they're coming from, where they are at emotionally. And that's a very mature statement for a second-year head coach um, in his first year at a new program to, to know and understand. You can tell that he's very well-schooled uh, from, from the Nick Saban tree, and that's big. I mean, that's big because that shows that he's listening to his players. Um, you, know, uh, you know, that's how, you know, if, if you're recruiting your guys on a daily basis, they're going to buy in, you know, in every game plan every week. Okay, we might have some other things to talk about regarding the Spartans, but we can kind of weave that into the Iowa conversation here. Let's let's take a look at Michigan State's opponent on Saturday. I did find it interesting, or maybe not surprising, or maybe it is surprising that the gambling lines opened as I with Iowa being a nine point favorite, and that shot down to seven pretty quickly. And now it's kind of settled at Iowa plus six and a half. Now you look at. You know, I Michigan State has the best game on the resume out of, out of those two teams, and Iowa kind of enters, enters this game 0-2. But it seems like Iowa kind of gets the still gets the benefit of a doubt in certain things in that area. What kind of things are you looking for uh, Saturday as they make the trip west? Uh, you know, I think it has a lot to do with, I mean, the thing D'Antonio did so well uh, was how they performed after the Michigan game, right, after beating Michigan, after big games. You know, the thing that gets lost in the, the best of the Antonio era, not the last couple of years, but the best of it was that they didn't do what traditional good MSU teams did where they would upset somebody great and then lose games that were winnable. They, they won these sort of games. Um, the, what makes this week interesting is I don't think from a talent perspective that Michigan state is ahead of Iowa at all. Iowa, you know, blew a lead. They had a Northwestern, a deep, I think it's a pretty good Northwestern team, uh, last week. And, um, lost by one point at home they're 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 wounded a little bit they're a young team in certain spots um you know it, it, it's they're playing at home which is not an advantage home teams went zero and five in the big 10 last year last week and uh including two two um 
two home, pretty heavy home favorites. So I, you know, I, I think Michigan State's got, this is a game even before last week, I thought they could be competitive in. And um, it's just, I, you know, you talk about the Vegas line. I, if anybody's looking at that perspective of things, this is not a Michigan State team you can trust right now, bet for or against. Like when I say trust, there is value in having a team that you know stinks and being able to bet against them every single week. This is a Michigan State team that just looked really, really good and maybe played to its potential in beating Michigan and a lot of fast. Yeah. And then now yeah. with the team that lost to, to Rutgers and shows the propensity if they're not focused, if they don't have things right, that they can turn the ball over and lose to a bad team. So, I, you know, I have no idea what we'll, what we'll see. I think that's what makes this team really interesting. But I would be surprised uh, if there aren't elements of last week that are they're built upon. Yeah, and, you know, this is the third straight week they're going to face a first-time quarterback, too. Um, you know, and by that I mean the guy that wasn't starting last year. I mean, they had Vedral against Nebraska, or against uh, the Nebraska transfer against Rutgers. Um, they had Milton last week against Michigan, and now they'll, they'll face the Petrus kid at Iowa. And he's he hasn't exactly lit the world on fire yet. He's, he's a, a big, sturdy kid. Um, but they've got to be able to get that kind of pressure um, and – and do those things on the defensive line that they showed against Joe Milton. And, and, you know, he's going to be a little bit more of a pocket passer than, than Milton is. Um, so that'll help in some respects for, for a defensive line trying to go after more sacks. I think that's where it all starts. And it's going to be interesting with Iowa being without uh, Smith Marset, who I think, you know, you're talking about a guy that may be one of the best returners in big 10 history. I mean, there's a threat to go deep anytime you touch a kickoff. Um, that's a big loss for them. And, you know, it's the second leading receiver as well. Um, certainly there's some things that, that if they can build on the things that they showed in the, the Rutgers game after that first drive on defense and then the whole day against Michigan, I think there's a good chance to go in there and win this game. Um, but, you know, you're right. I mean, it's, you know, what, what are we going to see? This isn't a rivalry game. It's a little different in that respect. But there is that element of Rocky Lombardi's homecoming. And like, I, like we have talked about, I mean, he's a guy that brings kids along with him. Uh, this is one of those times that I think the kids will rally around him because they understand how big and how important of a, a moment it is for him. And, and from a gambling perspective, I'll just tell people, that's, those are little things you got to watch. I'll give you an example. Like last week, Chiefs are huge favorites going into the Jets, right? It's like a 20-point favorite. And you worry that they they'll have a game where they don't where they they let down and they're not you know they don't cover that's a big line. The fact that Le'Veon Bell is going back to the team he was just at, you know they're all going to be focused. You know he's going to be focused, and and they cover that spread. So uh, you know the, the the Rocky Lombardi thing for a seven point line. I wouldn't you know I'd be inclined as long as it's that that high you can get it around there to to uh, to, to take MSU if you're thinking about playing it one way or another. Yeah, let's segue that into our predictions for Saturday, Chris. I'll have you go first. Oh, this is a tough one because I haven't really given much thought to it just yet. Um, here we are on Tuesday, and you're still kind of kind of vibing off that Michigan game. And, <laughs> I know we you know, spent the, we spent the fi- nature of it. We spent 50 well, minutes yeah, talking about I mean, Michigan, so yeah, of course. <laughs> listen, listen, Mel Tucker might want to turn the page after 24 hours, but our <laughs> readers don't. Uh, let's put it that way. Yep. Um, and our bosses don't either because that's that's a hey, that's the two teams in the state that means something to us uh, and to our readers. So. Um, boy, I, I, you know, I, I think that this is a team, like Graham said, that, that we're not going to know enough about uh, until you get to that. I mean, we've hit the court. That's the weird thing. We've hit the quarter pole of the Big Ten season. That's weird. 
that's weird. It Two is. games in, right? Um, you know, that's there's you know six more games left. This is to me the first real true test. But if you go into Michigan Stadium and win, I, I don't see why you couldn't go into Kinnick and win. And, and none of these guys have an experience there yet. This is it's just going to be another stadium, another place to play a game without fans. To me, um, albeit one with pink locker rooms, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, I, I think they're going to be able to put some points up. Um, I, and I think I, I, I'm going to have Michigan State winning this one, let's say uh, 28 to 24. Graham? Well, so if you're listening to Chris, jump on the money line because that's, that's, um, that's a pretty good payout. The, um, I, I don't feel as, as strongly. I, like I, I think Iowa's going to be a little desperate. They're, they're hungry there. I, and home is weird. If, you know, in normal circumstances, it'll be a little different. Um, like I, I think it'll be a competitive good game and um you know iowa maybe that's gonna snake bite them a little bit the idea they haven't finished games i'm gonna pick iowa in this game um and uh you know I, what's that they're desperate at zero and two that's the other factor that comes in on totally the desperation factor to not go zero and three uh, yeah i think we're looking at a you know somewhere around a you know 20 uh 27 20 30 to 24 type game. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go, I'll go, um, I'll go Iowa. I'll say MSU covers the seven, but I'll say Iowa by six. I am going to go with Chris here and I, I'm going to pick a Michigan state victory as well. It's pretty similar to, I think similar scores, uh, probably something similar to the Michigan game, 27, 24, something like that. And regarding Graham's recommendation on if you if you liked what Chris said and taking the money line, it is plus two twenty. So you can bet ten dollars to win thirty two and some change, and go from there. And there's I mean, look, look, that yeah. Iowa, that, we don't know where that Iowa team is. I mean, they had a rough off season. I mean, they had a lot of external noise uh, from alums and 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 things that 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 could be disruptive. I mean, we saw where Michigan State was when they had those internal problems back in 2016. I mean, you know, as good a coach as Kirk Ferentz may be, some of those things sometimes get outside of the, the coach's control. All right. Anything else, guys, before we sign off here? I got nothing. Well, I just uh, want to say congratulations to our friend Fred Human, who is going to be apparently back on the air with uh, Channel 10 in Lansing. Uh, good dude and uh, even better sports broadcaster. No, I like Fred, and then that sixty-five plus demographic that advertisers love. He and Stout are really gonna, really gonna be, really nail it. <laughs> All right, thank you for joining us for this edition of Spartan Speak, a production of the Lansing State Journal, Detroit Free Press, and the USA Today Network. If you enjoy this podcast and the work surrounding it, please consider subscribing. You can follow our coverage at lsj.com, freep.com, and on Twitter at Graham underscore Couch, at Chris Solari, at Phil underscore Friend, and at LSJ Green White. Thanks for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, 
freep.com or wherever you get your podcasts.